0: If I haven't seen you since the first, Um, I'm going to go ahead and start off with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you as a community, Lord, that is just um, eager to seek your presence, eager to be known by you, to experience you, to grow deeper in love with you. And Father, I pray this morning that we might be changed by your word. God, that our hearts would just be molded, that our pride would be broken, and that our spirit might just yearn for your presence more and more. And Father, I ask that you interrupt uh, any agenda of mine, that, any, that you, you stop me from saying a word that isn't of you. That you interrupt my agenda, God, if my agenda is, this is not a up with your purpose. So that only your word would be heard this morning. And Father, I ask that you just move in my heart, you just work in my heart. That you speak to me this morning, that that might overflow And it might overflow accurately into the the lives and the hearts and the souls of each one of us here this morning. Father, we just invite your presence. We invite your miracles. We invite your voice. We invite your leading into this room this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, A lot of my younger life, I think specifically through my teenage years... Uh, I had this internal struggle. I was kind of this internal struggle. Um, why I liked people, I liked being around people, I liked socializing with people. Um, I deep down believed I never really fit in with people, and part of that is because I just didn't think I was, quote, you know, cool enough. Or there's just maybe there's this feeling of not being funny, and yet I was surrounded by people who were funny, or I wasn't fun enough. I didn't contribute enough to community or to groups. Uh, for me to feel like that was my, my, that was my niche, that was my belonging. Um, I often always kind of dressed a little differently. I kind of had a lot of handy down clothes and um, for whatever reason I just, I think I was just out of touch with style. <laughs> so, like I was always oblivious to it until, I don't know, probably halfway through college I started thinking about my clothes. Um, but I felt like everyone else around me was connected but myself and I was simply pretending And I was scared that one day, uh, somebody would or people would discover that I was just pretending to get along. I was pretending to connect it. And I really wasn't a funny person. I was trying really hard to be funny. I was trying really hard to to, to engage with people. And I was uh, fearful that one day people would see the real me. And that 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 real me um, wasn't going to be good enough. Now be honest. How many of you can relate to that? Maybe those early years. How many of you would relate to that experience? Right? I think it's a it's a natural thing. Especially in our younger years. Uh, there's like this real us. That's scared to be seen. Or scared to be known. Uh, there's this guy I knew. Uh, I was like... You know, a freshman in high school. He was like a senior in high school. He, was a good, he wasn't really a good friend of mine, but we just were around a lot of the same groups a lot of the times. We went to the same youth group and stuff like that. Um, and he was just the center of attention. Just kind of this typical center of attention. Everyone liked him. Very charismatic, very funny, right? Just kind of entered a room and instantly drew the attention of people. Right, You can just kind of imagine this like high school setting and where that, that kind of a, a, a connection happens with a person where it just kind of has that you know, leadership qualities, I suppose. Um, and I remember one, t- one time when we were in a youth group, we, we had a, a Bible study in which we were in the same study group together. And there were some times that we were going around in the circles and there were some confessions going on. And one of the things that he confessed is that he was terrified of people. He was absolutely terrified of people. And so he, he forced this, like, persona out. He forced this persona of, let me, uh, let me pretend to be really funny. Let me be really outspoken, right? Let me just be the center of attention. Uh, because in a way, it felt like for him, he was trying to distract what was really going on inside. And he was terrified of people. He was terrified of people knowing the real uh, him. And so all of his relationships were simply surface level. Um, living like that brings out a sense of shame in our life. There's a sense of shame that's going to develop and it's going to, it's going to, uh, uh, overflow in our heart. It's just this shame of, of like us failing to fit in or us failing a certain kind of a standard. Um, one of the definitions of shame or at least a definition that I, I want us to think about this morning is this. It's when we fail our own standards. Like we get shame is when we fail our own standards, Right? Because we fail someone else's standard and it's not our standards. It's just like we don't care. But when it's something we believe this is important and we fail that, we experience shame. Right? We experience uh, shame when we fail uh, some kind of standard. Right? We, we believe good people should do such and such things. We believe that a good husband does this or a good wife does this. Honest people are this. Good employees do these kinds of things. Good citizens do these kinds of things, and so we have these standards. And when we fail those standards, uh, that's when we experience this like this kind of a shame. But it's, it's something internal that we that we hold on to. All right? Well, we have some kind of a standard, and we don't hold up to it. We we might expect other people to hold up to it. It's a standard we believe in, but we don't hold up to it. All right? That's where this sense of shame comes from. And the, 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 the truth is, is that shame is incredibly and incredibly destructive. It's an incredibly destructive thing for, the, for, for, for a heart, for a person, for a mind. Uh, shame brings out a sense of envy. It brings out uh, anger. It brings out bitterness. Oftentimes, shame brings out a sense of loneliness because it causes you to kind of withdraw people or at least become shallow with people. Often it brings out sadness and even depression. Right? Shame holds a heavy weight on a person's soul. And when we don't meet standards, when we don't meet our own standards, when we know we aren't good enough, uh, we, we develop this serious, unhealthy emotional reaction. Uh, shame is corrosive to our souls. It is destructive to our joy. And it's frustrating to our ambition. It is bad for emotional and intellectual well-being. But it it impacts our relationships. It impacts our relationships. Um, Shame, as as I alluded to before, it isolates us. We live with a sense of shame. We tend to withdraw ourselves from others. It's something that that kind of prevents us. It kind of becomes a wall, a barrier that, that prevents us from really engaging or connecting with people. We tend to be less healthy in how we connect with people. We tend to try to find kind of other, other, other non honest means of connecting with people when we're living and dealing with a sense of shame. Like my friend in high school, when we fail, uh, when we feel like we fail our own standards, we place emotional guards that prohibit honesty. We tend to have surface level relationships with people. We don't want people to know what we're ashamed about. That's what shame does. Right? We don't want people to know the things we're ashamed about. So what's the cure? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. This, this place of, I'm terrified that people might know. But I'll open those doors up. I'll make myself vulnerable. It it releases those barriers that shame creates. Vulnerability is one of our greatest weapons against shame. Our willingness to be honest. To confess. To speak openly. To shed light into those things, those areas we feel like we failed. Or the standards we feel like we haven't been able to keep up with. When we are honest that we don't meet our own standards of goodness. There is, becomes room internally for us, for healing and our hearts, uh, to be able to connect and build a relationship. Uh, a couple years back, I remember reading an article that, that spoke about how women specifically were naturally, um, or most often, or, or more, sorry, not more often, but um, more commonly, women were, were naturally attuned to this kind of a human behavior in people. They're naturally kind of drawn to people who are more vulnerable. Um, it's been found that generally speak, speaking, that, that that was an attractive trait uh, with, with you know, women looking towards men. And I remember one of the things that it had shared is that uh, women you know, subconsciously uh, would recognize that when a man is being more vulnerable, that he was more willing to let a partner into their life. So vulnerability uh, became a, a, a symbol... Right? A symbol that this is somebody who's really wanting to, to develop and engage in a relationship. Somebody who, who was not vulnerable, it was kind of closed off. That they were unwilling to or unable to connect at a deeper level. So women are kind of more naturally attuned to that. Uh, but vulnerability pierces through our self-made emotional walls that we place up to protect our shame. Vulnerability just pierces right through that. But I want to go a step further, though, than this this idea that that we just need to be vulnerable uh, with ourselves or even with each other. Because vulnerability um, with people isn't capable of fixing our whole problem. Right? It is not capable of fixing our whole problem. Uh, When we fail standards... When we fail our own standards, we fail, you know, larger standards, uh, more, has to be then, uh, more has to be done than us just getting over our failure, than us just forgiving ourselves. Um, I, I'm certain hum- humanity knows that deep, deep, deep down inside, we know more has to be done than us forgiving ourselves of our mistakes. If we fail a moral standard, it isn't enough uh, to just forgive ourselves. It isn't enough just for us to feel better about it. Right? If, I, if I robbed a bank and I forgave myself, I'm not off the hook. Right? I robbed a bank and I, I'm not off the hook simply because I forgive myself. We know um, that there's, there's, there's some scales of justice that need to be dealt with. Um, the, the overwhelming number of human beings... as as far as I'm aware, on this earth, believe that there are such things as moral standards in the world. That there are real moral standards. There is such a thing as good and evil, right? That there's such a thing as good and evil that we we believe uh, that there are standards, things like rape. We believe rape is wrong. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. We believe there are things that are wrong. And it doesn't matter whether you think it or not, right? Because there are some people out there, some psychopaths out there that think murder is wrong, right? We know that there is a standard, a universal standard that says, no, it is wrong, regardless of whether or not you think it or not. That rape is wrong, regardless of what society might say about it. Stealing is wrong. And on the other hand, we believe that love is good. Justice is good. Honesty is good. Right? Most people believe that there are standards. We might disagree about what those standards are, but we believe that there are standards, there are moral standards. And in fact, the people, I think, that, that seem to reject that, reject it because, because of what it means. There are moral standards in the world. Uh, um, part of what that means is there, there, there must be a God, right? Um, if you logically work it out, you find that it's very, very, very difficult to explain good and evil without God, it's very difficult to explain that. Right? Objective, what they would, philosophers, and great thinkers, smarter people than myself, what they call objective moral laws exist only if there is a lawgiver. There's something out there that defines this standard of love, or at least gives us, um, gives us that standard of love. Um, in the movie Big Daddy, right? Silly movie. Adam Sandler, about a guy, you know, midlife guy who's immature. He adopts this uh, young kid. On, on, well, I guess he doesn't adopt. He kind of has a kid thrown to, on him. Um, but there's a scene in which, you know, uh, this, this young boy, this five-year-old boy is playing um, cards. And they're just pretending to play. But he's playing cards with a bunch of other grown men. And you can see all these grown men. They're carefully looking at the cards, calculating, trying to figure out what they have, what's going to be the, you know, what's the best move for them to take. And then the boy just kind of lays down his hand, and it's absolutely nothing. It's like a two, five, seven, jack and an ace, right? Nothing. And the boy just says, I win. And then all the, all the guys look at the cards and be like, what are you talking about? You have literally nothing. And then the boy says, so I win. And then, and then one of the guys is like, that's not how this game works. There's rules, right? There's standards here. But the boy is making up these these rules as he goes, right? He's playing this, you know, I win game in which he defines the rules as he goes. And concerning ethics, what's right and what's wrong, either we make up the rules as we go or there are rules. And regardless of what we think or whether or not we like them or not, right, there are standards that are true. Right, either either we make it up as we go, and there's no such thing as good and evil, or there is a moral law. There are standards. There is a lawgiver, and if there are moral laws, right, there is a lawgiver. Now, why is that important? Right, because it shows us there is a larger, what I call cosmic standard, a universal standard. There's this larger cosmic justice out there, right? It's not just about us feeling whether or not something is right and wrong, but there actually is something right and wrong. And what it also shows us is that there is a big judge. There's someone who is observing a life and observing and assessing, is this right or wrong? Is this good or is this evil? Right? It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our own impressions and our own assumptions. And so here's the thing. Uh, we might, uh, when, or so when we fail those moral laws, when we, uh, quote, like miss the mark, right? Often a description of sin. When we miss a mark, when we, when we fail from, from good, when we fail from what is right, uh, we can't forgive or pardon ourselves of our own crimes, we don't have that right. If there's this larger cosmic justice, if God is real, and objective morality exists, we don't have the right to forgive ourselves of our own crimes. We have failed the standard of cosmic justice. Um, a rapist can't just forgive themselves. A murderer can't just forgive themselves. Thieves can't just forgive themselves. Liars, cheaters, haters, they can't just forgive themselves. Right? There's some scales of justice that need to be weighed out. And when we break that moral law, we become unable to forgive ourselves. We could try to make ourselves feel better about something, but deep down we know we've broken a moral, we've broken this moral standard, something bigger than me. I believe deep, deep down inside, human beings know that. Right when we face with what's written on our heart, we are aware. We know that there are moral standards. There are things and there are places in which we have failed. And regardless of whether or not we forgive ourselves, we know there's more that has to be done. Uh, when we understand that there is a moral law to this world, and we understand that there is a lawgiver who observes and knows, and we know that when we break that law, we're guilty. We're guilty. And we can't talk ourselves out of that guilt. We can't forgive ourselves. Because it's not our right to pardon our own guilt. I right? like the, the bank robber analogy. I mean, you can think of it. I'm driving down the road and I'm speeding and I get pulled over by a cop. The cop comes and says, what were you doing? I do have to write you a ticket. And this is, I say, well, it's okay. I've forgiven myself. That's not going to work. Right? There's some standard of injustice. There's something more there. It's not about our own perceptions of how we feel. Right? Being vulnerable allows us to engage in a relationship. But being vulnerable just with ourselves or with others doesn't fix our problem. That we've failed standards of justice. And, and when we understand that the reality of sin, and I think this is something that we so often forget. We forget what sin is. We forget what sin is. And I think it's just because in churches, which is good, we talk so much about God's love. We talk so much about God's grace. Sometimes we forget uh, who we are without Jesus. Who we are without the cross. Um, I would be absolutely terrified to stand before an all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect judge and explain to him why I deserve his eternal blessing apart from Jesus, I would be terrified. The way he could scan through my life and look at the sin there, at the brokenness, the selfishness. I'd be terrified to stand before a perfect judge. An all-knowing perfect judge. Right? Sin is a big deal. Sometimes we forget the full weight of sin. But when we, when we grasp the full weight, and we grasp the, the reality of what sin is, It will bring out a real sense of shame. It's going to bring out a real sense of guilt. We know we failed standards. We know we've missed the mark. We know we failed. And the reality is, it is a shame and guilt we cannot overcome ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves. We are left with that shame and that guilt. And that. That is the story of our life. That is the story of all human life without the gospel. People who have failed these larger standards. People who have been left uh, just have doing injustice with no way of redeeming themselves. Without Jesus, without his blood spilt on the cross, without the abundance of God's love and forgiveness. Without Jesus, we are left with shame and guilt. We are left with this sense of shame and guilt that there's, there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We are, we are left with this unescapable truth that we have failed to live out the standard of justice. And that shame and that guilt, it's destructive. This is where we are. This is where people are without the gospel. With this weight of shame and guilt with nothing to do with it. And just like in our human relationship, our shame, it prohibits relationship with God. Right? Sin has this effect. Right? The more there's this sin, and it's unchecked, it's undealt with, it's, un, um, you know, it's unconfessed. It has a way of creating these boundaries and these barriers between us and God because we feel like, at, I mean, at least for myself, I feel like I'm a phony when I go before God with unconfessed sin. So I create these barriers, these boundaries. that kind of prohibit that healthy relationship. Unaddressed shame, failure, brokenness will hinder our relationship with God. But here's what I want us to understand this morning. And here's what I want us to be moved by this morning. Like in our relationship with people, vulnerability with God is key. It's key that we humbly come before God willing to be vulnerable with our hearts. Willing to be vulnerable with our souls. Confessing our sin, our brokenness, our failure to God. This cosmic lawgiver and judge. It paves the way for healing. It creates a path for restoration. And it opens doors to healthy relationship with him. We're going to see that in Scripture this morning, and we're about halfway through already, but uh, I want to turn to Psalm 32. Unlike so many psalms, uh, especially many of the psalms that we've been talking about these last few weeks, um, this particular psalm, it's telling a story. You can kind of see it go through different stages of of, of a person's life or different stages at least, of a person's heart and how they're dealing with their sin, or at least how they're telling the story about how they dealt with sin. But let's look at it together. We're going to read a couple of verses at a time. Psalm 32, per, picking right up on verse 1. And it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. All right, so right off these first two verses, it's defining. What we might call the ideal state. It's that you have sin, but it's been forgiven. So that when you stand before God, this judge, when you stand before this all knowing, all powerful lawgiver judge, your sins have been dealt with. And that God might look at you and say, innocent. That's an ideal state. And that's what the, the psalm is directing our attention to say. Blessed is he. Whose sins have been forgiven. Who God can't find fault with. And then he turns to his own story. Picking up at verse 3. He says. For when I kept silent. When I kept silent. My bones wasted away. Through my, uh, 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 through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer. Right, but, but listen to that language. Right, so the, the, the passage assumes sin. It assumes that the author has sinned and that there's something there, but it hasn't been confessed. Right, and likewise, we know um, we have all sinned. All right, but that the author assumes sins. And he says, when I kept silent. When he was silent about his sin. When he wasn't confessing his sin to God. When he wasn't being transparent. He wasn't being vulnerable with God. He, he admits then, my bones were wasting. Like this internal pain. This, the, the, what keeps me up. What, gives me, what keeps me uh, um, you know, erected. What keeps me up. It's just withering away. Dissolving away my strength is fading my groaning was all day long there's this internal pain from this rep- from this repressed unconfessed sin the reality is he felt the guilt of his sin that's 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 what what happens when we feel the guilt of our sin it weighs in on us a something we all would feel when we're honest with our sin When we look at our sin face to face and we think this, this is the weight of it. And we understand the full power of of what it does against us. And then he shares about when he becomes honest, speaking up at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't hide it. I, I confessed it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, right? Um, There, there's this beautiful thing that he's talking about. I acknowledged my sin. I was vulnerable. I didn't try to hide anything. I laid it out, right? I let light into those dark places in my life. I shared the things that I was guilty with. I shared what I was ashamed of, And he said, I will confess my transgressions. And then he says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Bottom line, God forgave. God forgives. And then the author turns to advice towards his reader for us. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And he says, offer prayers specifically when you may be found. This is a very solemn warning. He's saying essentially, don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait for that moment in which you can be screaming for forgiveness and it's too late. When you've come face to face with the guilt and it's too late to now uh, to, 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 to seek that forgiveness. Seek forgiveness before it's too late. And here he transitions to a place of praise to God. In a way, thanking God for being good. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from my trouble. You surrounded me with shouts of deliverance. And then he directs to us our audience. He says, I will instruct you and I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be uh, curbed with bit and bridle, bridle, or it will not stay near you. All right. Uh, don't, don't be a horse or a mule. He's saying, don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Don't be naive of your sin. Right, Part of what this is going on in this passage is he's, he's, he's just simply warning us. Don't go, let your sin go unforgiven until it's too late. Don't be stubborn. Don't be like the horses and the mules, but you have to force and grab their attention to something else. I don't be that way. And then he wraps up the psalm in verses ten through eleven, he says, uh, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Now I never want to complicate Scripture. I never, ever want to complicate scripture. I never want to uh, to lead us to believe uh, it is saying something that it isn't saying. Or add something that isn't there. And I think one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it's incredibly simple. Its message is incredibly simple. Blessed are you who are innocent. It's good to be innocent before God. That is a good place to be. Before I confessed my sin... Before I was vulnerable with my sin, I was wasting away internally. And then I opened up, and I confessed, and I was vulnerable with God. I opened my heart up before God, and God was faithful, and he forgave me. Pray to God. Seek God before it's too late. Right? It's just a, a very simple, clear message for us this morning. That's the point of the psalm. This psalm, um, this, uh, psalm uh, Augustine said it was his favorite psalm. And Augustine, I, I love Augustine. He's a very brilliant guy. Um, great in, intellectual man. And, and he said this psalm was his favorite psalm. Why? Because he saw this as the building blocks to life. Uh, about the psalm, and in one of his commentaries, he said, uh, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. Right, um, you can't have a real success anywhere else in your life, like real, and I mean real success, something that weighs more than just like kind of material success, but a success with real weight. You're never gonna have real success in your life until you really know who you are before God. You're never gonna find success anywhere else until you really understand who you are and who you are before God, your Creator. And when you do, and you confess that. Uh, it, it empowers you to be a, to a hope-filled future. And he later went on to write that the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Right, like within the Christian life, that turning point at which we, we, we confess what's wrong in us. It becomes the, the first steps for us becoming something fruitful, something good to this world. And vulnerability is one of the most powerful and beautiful traits in the Christian faith. Now, being able to be vulnerable with God and people about our sin, about our brokenness, about our failures. It's a critical piece of becoming what God dreams us to be. People who are humble. People who confess. People who see what's wrong in their life and actually really want to do something about it. And really want to change. So much that they become vulnerable that they confess so that God and the community of God might speak into those failures. Be vulnerable with God about your sin. As so much of what the psalm is saying to us. Be vulnerable to God about your sin. Confess it. Dig deep. Dig deep into the heart, uh, uh, to, to that the darkness in your heart. Let God dig deep into the darkness of your heart. Confess it. Deal with that sin. Some of us have a hard time being vulnerable. Not just with God, but with people. Uh, It it concerns me though, because some some of us just have these barriers in which, you know, we we always want to have these surface level conversations when we talk about sin. We don't actually want to talk about what's really wrong, what, what the real sin is in our life. And it concerns me. Because if you aren't being vulnerable... Um, I, I sincerely question whether or not you understand grace. And you understand what the nature of grace is. You understand what the gospel is. right? If you can't be vulnerable about your brokenness, then, and then it might be because you fear God or others knowing the things you're shameful about. There's some shame in your life, and you fear what's going to happen if someone finds out. You fear what, what God might want to do with that stuff that you're shameful about. And that means at some level that you think your shame is worth something. You think those failures are actually worth something. That they contribute something to your actual worth. It means that you think your failure means something about what makes you valuable. That you're afraid of being vulnerable because you fear how that might impact how God or others view you. Then if I, if I say too much, if I confess too much... People's views of me might change. God's view of me might change. Which means, ultimately means, you think your value comes from this image that you maintain. That people love me, they value me, they appreciate me, they think about me, they want to be around me because of this persona I have created. And I'm fearful to ever let people know too much because i'm going to i'm fearful of what that thing that i think makes me valuable is going to come crashing down do you follow that if you're afraid of being vulnerable about your sin it's, it might be because you fear that others knowing your sin is going to impact your worth that's going to make you worth less it's going to make you less lovable relatable that isn't the gospel In fact, I I think it's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says quite clearly, your worth isn't about you. According to the gospel, your worth is not secured in you and how you're perceived or what you've done. Your worth is secured in God's perfect love for you. You are not valuable because because, because of who you are. You are valuable because of who values you. And I hate to to break it to the egomaniacs in the room, but it's not about you. God's love for you is not about you. You are valuable because of who loves you. Right? Something is only as valuable as much as someone values it. I like the show Pawn Stars. Anyone watch the show Pawn Stars in here? I don't know if it's even still going around, but it was it was kind of popular for a while. And that it was about this a pawn shop in Las Vegas. And people would come into this pawn shop, and they would have all kinds of crazy stuff. And they would try to sell it and see how much it's worth. And so people would come in, and they'd have like, you know, some kind of a jewelry, and then be like, oh, you know, how much is this jewelry worth? It's a one-of-a-kind piece, right? And, and the guys will look at it, and They'll either give them an honest answer or really, you know, just say, hey, it's, it's, it's not worth anything. Or they'll, or they'll tell them, oh, you know, it's worth, there's one episode in which the girl comes in and she's like, oh, I'm hoping to get this for $1,000. And the guy's like, uh, that's worth 50000 Right? Like, so it's not like they're just trying to scam them. Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that you hear them say over and over and over again in the show is that something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Because right? some people come in and they think, oh, it's a one-of-a-kind or look how fancy this earth, how beautiful it is. It must be worth thousands. And what they often find out, <laughs> what, was, what these guys often say is, is like how rare it is has no impact on what it's worth. Right? One of the, I remember one of, the, one of the guys was like, you know, I have a rock in, the back of my, in, the, in my backyard. It's a one-of-a-kind too. But nobody wants to pay two cents for it. Right? Being rare doesn't make something valuable. It doesn't establish something's value, right? Demand affects value. Desirability affects value. So if something's really desirable at a certain time, that's going to affect something's value. Now, Now here is the point of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for you. He collected the debt of all of your sin. Like we as human beings have been going around like with credit cards for sin and just swiping and swiping and swiping and swiping and accumulating and accumulating and accumulating this debt of sin. And on the cross, Jesus grabs all of that. Right? He retakes all of that. He, he paid the entire price. He collected the entire price of sin. Why? So you don't have to. So you might have relationship with him. But Jesus did not die on the cross because you were sinless, perfect, or worthy of his love. He didn't die on a cross because you were good enough. He died on the cross because he loves you. He died on the cross because he values you. He died on the cross because he wants relationship with you. So if something is worth what someone is willing to pay for it, And Jesus was willing to pay with his life for you. Jesus paid a whole great deal of grief for you. What does that say about your value? It says you are valuable. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. That's the point of the gospel. That is the gospel. Right? And no image you can maintain is going to affect that. You are valuable because of who he is. Right? If something is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Think about the fact that Jesus was willing to pay his life for you. That says something about your value to him. There is no room for shame. There's no room. There's no reason to hide in your sin. Jesus knows your sin. And he loves you regardless. He doesn't value you because you're good enough. He values you because he loves you. You're worth so much to him. You have every reason to trust him. Every reason to be vulnerable with him. Be vulnerable with the people he wants you to be vulnerable with. To be vulnerable with his community, with his people. By sharing your sin, your faults, your failures. Be vulnerable. He is worth trusting. When I was about nine years old, I was exposed to something that would effectively change me. It would impact me heavily for the next 10 years, and it would impact me really for the rest of my life. A, a friend of uh, one of my older brothers uh, logged on to one of my parents' computer, and he pulled up porn. He didn't close it. He just simply turned off the monitor. And he left it, and I stumbled on it. I saw things and that drew attention that I never had before. That's one of the things about uh, sexuality for young boys. It often is, it, it's... Um, young, young men start thinking about sexual things when they're exposed to sexual things. That's one of the, it's one of the, the bizarre things that goes on. But at nine years old, I was exposed. I was too young to know what I was seeing or doing. I was too young to understand or fight it. Right? Like, like cigarettes, right? It's one of the things that we find about cigarettes. That people who, who, who develop smoking habits, often that started before they are even 14 years old. Too young before they knew what they're really getting themselves into. Make that a warning to you parents. Right? Uh, this starts incredibly young. And it's an epidemic. It's a huge, huge, huge epidemic. The, the, the statistics about pornography viewing for both guys and girls, young ages, is just astronomically high. Call me a kook, but uh, my children won't have uh, unmonitored access to the internet until I know they can process what they're absorbing. Right? Um, but I was exposed way too young. And my parents had no idea. And eventually, this casual exploration of porn became this intense battle. But by the time that it really was a battle, the addiction was extremely powerful. And for the next decade or so, I, I fought a losing battle. Right Sometime in that war uh, within my heart, I developed this very, very clear hate for porn, uh, one that is incredibly strong today. Um, porn is anything but a, a, a harmless sin. It's destructive. It's hazardous, both to the viewer and to the viewed, and to the, to the innocent children today who are being raised in a hypersexualized culture. Uh, today, we live in a, in a culture that, is, that hypes up sex in all the wrong ways. Not in any healthy way, but in all the wrong ways. Uh, hyped up on a broken, sick view of, of, of sex. Misogynistic, degrading, broken views of people. Um, and, and you actually look at the rise of porn in our society, and even just globally. There's like nearly a perfect correlation with the rise of rape and sex trafficking. It is, it is anything it is anything but harmless. There is a huge effect to this, to this shift that's taking place in our culture. And somewhere in my long battle against porn, I learned that this is bad. This is really bad. This is destructive, and it's harmful, and it's hurting people. It's hurting myself. It's hurting, it's hurting the, the, the people on the screen. It's hurting the, the children being raised in society. I felt all that shame, that guilt, that weight of that sin. I was broken by that evilness in my heart. And I think that's an interesting picture, I think, of what so many Christians face with sin. They hate it, but they're they're stuck in it. Fighting to get out. Uh, The unconfessed, quieted, publicly invisible sin in my life was degrading me inside. A silent killer to my joy and to my faith. Um, I think that, I mean, that kind of happened right around, I mean, that kind of climax right around uh, the time I struggled with my doubt in my life. And I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that, that, that there's a correlation between that sin and that doubt. Somewhere in that battle I learned, and I was challenged to fight this in a new way, in a different way. Rather than trying to fight it in my broken willpower, I learned to confess it to fight it by exposing it. So I confessed. I confessed before God. I confessed to friends I trusted. I confessed to mentors, to pa- uh, pastors, people I trusted. I confessed to the community of God. And I let the floodgates of truth unfold. And I experienced, experienced something I had never experienced in that war before. Victory. Freedom. Healing. And the problem didn't suddenly disappear overnight, but it turns, turned the tide of war. I learned to be vulnerable with God. I learned to be vulnerable with God's people. And I experienced the healing the gospel brings. We are a community of love. We are a community that knows our brokenness, but knows it doesn't matter. At least it doesn't matter in our value and our weight to God. We are a community of people who have been moved by grace. Right? So be vulnerable, be real, and be honest. And let God in his mighty power work. Vulnerability begins. It begins to reveal, sorry, it begins as reversal from destruction to restoration in our life. Vulnerability begins a reversal from destruction to restoration. It has the power to heal our brokenness, to restore our relationships with God and people. And there is this beautiful promise within Scripture. In confession, there is forgiveness. It's what we saw in the text, what we see in Psalms 32. I confessed and you forgave. The price of your sin has already been paid. You simply accept it. We accept it by accepting Jesus' gift. Today we take communion. The first Sunday of the month, uh, we we as a community, we we gather, we take uh, communion as a way of celebrating what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Uh, We're not just celebrating, but also remembering And I challenge us specifically, too, to think about the weight of sin in this time as well. We celebrate that he paid the debts of our failures. Part of what that means is that we understand our failures. And we become honest with our failures. That we confess our failures. And we honor Jesus and we love him by confession, by communion, and by praise. Uh, today, I, I challenge you to do something a little different, though, as the, um, as the bread and the juice is passed around. And I'm going to pray for us, but then the, the band's going to come up, and the ushers are going to come up, and they're going to distribute the elements. Um, but during that time, really confess your sin before God. Take, a, a take time to be vulnerable with your sin before God. Right before before we, we take communion, right? Uh, be real about the weight of that sin. Right, be vulnerable with God. Right, so to let that healing take place in your heart this morning, and then as we as we take communion together, right, pin that shame to the cross. Pin the weight of that shame to the cross. And then we're gonna we're gonna eat the elements together and then we'll return and joyfully celebrate that we are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, I just ask that you prepare our hearts that as we Come and and take these elements right now, God. As we take communion together, God, that there's something real and powerful that happens in our hearts, that happens in our souls. That we might just grasp what our sin means. But more importantly, God, that we might grasp what your love means. God, remind us that we are not valuable, we are not worthy because of what we have done. And your love for us isn't about us. But God, let us us be able to trust, be able to rest in that assurance, Lord, that your love for us is secured in your perfection and not in our imperfection. And God, let us leave here today blessed because we know the iniquity of our sin has been forgiven. That we can stand in full confidence before you. Innocent. As your children, God, we thank you, we love you, and I, God, I ask that you let let the gospel pierce our hearts, pierce our stubbornness, Here's our laziness, God, so that as we enter into this week, we are changed people. And that we might demonstrate the gospel to those around us. And we might share your love to those around us. God, move us. Help us to be a movement of people who have been changed by grace. I pray these things in your name. Amen.